Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Here we are. Uh, well, 100 and Cinco, as the French say. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> welcome to sass audible thinking from, yeah, from me. click 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 welcome <laughs> yeah. to welcome to sass well everybody will be deep into the first fableman's discussion uh yeah this will be this will be yeah we'll see about that dropping after do we announce the next movie right now yeah and then barge ahead yes, okay next one is slumdog millionaire slumdog millionaire slumdog millionaire yeah if you a, pronounce it like a a great film uh many good things about it and things to discuss so we'll talk about and it and i'm trying to join think. us won't you we might as we look at this moving picture i'm trying to think you got to decide whether you can show it to your family or not that's going to be our policy we had a few people yeah no who, completely who always who are surprised at something in fablemans i'm not quite sure what but uh you have well, to decide here's, here's the thing with fablemans phone i'm gonna throw my phone over there um i think we've been really clear about filtering yeah so it's up to you it's not on us i I didn't show it to my family i did but i and i filtered it yeah and so it was lightly very lightly filtered i watched it with my older kids at some point with no filters and with my younger with one scene taken out really so nice but it's uh i mean it's really really minimal and there's there's one excruciating mom scene it was just like yeah okay you don't need to be yeah we can we can cut that the mental energy yep but it's it basically this is like you have to take responsibility you have to take authority over what you watch with your kids and how and when that's not us not our job so we'll we'll talk about all sorts of things i'll talk about uh saving private ryan in 1917 i'll talk about the movie magnolia as an amazing film which i still need to watch you've told me that at some point uh but it's man it's a jagged pill but that one is one that if I talk about something, you have to assume you still have to go do your due diligence and know that there's stuff in there that you don't want to watch. I'm not, I'm not vouching for, I'm not vouching for yeah, all the content. It's not vouching. We're talking about this. No film. The film. No film that is discussed here is being 100% vouched for unless I say I 100% vouch for everything in there. So unless we Slumdog make Millionaire, it. <laughs> Slumdog Millionaire is one that I watched with my kids. Um, younger a little bit younger there's definitely some things that were uh, a little too rough for them it just and more more thematically like thematic stuff yeah. that just the spoons just, the hot spoons <laughs> it's just br- it's just yeah. brutal it's yeah. there's some tough things in there that i i didn't feel like small imaginations need to know about so that's yeah. how i handled it uh fablemans i did watch with my kids my kids are older than your kids yeah and uh take authority take authority over the whole thing and Pony up, Dad. Pony up. So, like, pay for clear play. play pay for VidAngel. Pony up. Pony up. And Pony now, up. And now we ride. So that you can take authority over the, <laughs> the stuff. Yes. And at dawn, we ride. Okay. So, Slumdog <laughs> is our next one for Lamp. Yep. March. The next moving picture March we're going to look lamp. at. And uh, today is just that smorgasbord episode we were promising, but we, we lost I don't remember it. promising anything. Promise is a strong word. We were hinting <laughs> it would be coming. We answer your questions. We've got a stack. We vowed. We vowed. <laughs> we'll see if any of these spark okay. interest. Um, Let's go. First off, Prince, Prince of Egypt, the best Christian 
cartoon. No, false. What is? <laughs> Does there have to be a best Christian cartoon? Can we just say a good Christian cartoon? Spirited away. Boom. I agree with that 100%. Also, I, I ran this by, a, you know, in-house animator, Forrest, and he said, what are you talking about Christian cartoon? It was made by, by Spielberg. Yeah. Dream, DreamWorks. Yeah. And yeah. So do we mean Bible cartoon? Yeah. Is that what they mean? Um, they mean Bible story? Cause then obviously, I really, yes. I really do like Prince of Egypt and the, especially the, some of the musical pieces are fantastic. The thing I really, really hate a lot about Prince of Egypt is the toxic effect that it's had on people's uh, Bible story literacy. When they, re they watch that film, they know the film and then they interpret scripture through that lens. And so, Pharaoh's magicians are doing card tricks and sleight of hand and it's all fake. Yeah. Although they still have some nice, some nice demonic stuff. Kind they of. Turn it, they don't go, they don't go all in. I would say they. They're throwing powder and water. You know, it's like, it's yeah. all, they're not turning water into blood. And it would have been much, much stronger if these magicians were actual magicians doing actual. Yeah. Powerful, dangerous things. That's just Moses is that much scarier. I do enjoy Prince of Egypt. My kids yeah. watched Prince of Egypt. Yep. Um, and, I mean, and, and then we worked, we worked very hard. Like that's one of the big things we talked about is that modern materialists can't possibly, like can't possibly get to a place where they believe the Bible story. We just don't believe the Bible story. My sister was just telling me about the uh, museum of the Bible and she's, <laughs> she brought it up as, Hey, you know, who does not know how to tell a Bible story? The museum of the Bible doesn't know how to tell a Bible story. She's like, as you're going through, you notice that there's nothing miraculous anywhere. Oh no. It's all very materialistic and not miraculous except for God. God is present and does things, but there's no you know just even Goliath is not referred to as a giant. You know, like it's everything's just a very kinda, tall man. That's the Susan Well, it just it's it's nebulous. It's it's yeah. vague. It's empty. Well, that's the Susan Wise Bauer approach is they say the cubit actually isn't 18 inches back then, you know, it's maybe 12. So you Goliath know. was actually five foot eight, it turns out. And all the and, Israelites were midgets. And I'd like to add, he was five foot eight and he had brittle bone disease and, and was suffering from asthma and basically was going to die anyway. So David pe pebbled <laughs> him, <laughs> pebbled him and that was Really the, the whole story is about end of life care and, <laughs> and, and the mercy David showed. Um, it's amazing the it's the, a euthanasia story it's, yeah, <laughs> it's really amazing the the wild contortions that modernists will go and especially modern christians will go to not have outrageous things they believe in to not have the fantastical to not have the amazing not to have just the say, things that hey, make you uncomfortable this thing i believe it really is about as exciting as unflavored gelatin that thing i believe it's like here have a have a jello jiggler with no flavor just this this he was tall all right this clear thing of like there was a guy and he fell down that's all i'm saying there's just there was a guy and he fell over other than that i don't know i mean an aneurysm can take out anyone <laughs> at any time yeah. but it's it's ridiculous how how hard people work to not have scripture say things yeah well i mean it's it's proof the fact that katzenberger is the one in charge of our best Bible story. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's the one watching. Katzenberg, Berg, not a burger. burger. Please, please don't <laughs> be best. offensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it's that thing your dad always says about if you want to ask someone what the Bible says, ask, ask a liberal. Ask a liberal because they don't have to yep. believe it. So yep. 
they just said we're yeah susan weisbauer feels like she's stuck with the text the result so that's why it's so important that goliath be you know just any old dude yeah. any guy seven foot max uh, i'm still five eight probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just imagine, I just think it's hilarious that she thinks all the Israelites had itty bitty forearms. <laughs> they're really, they're, really baby they're cubits. <laughs> this is a, I mean, honestly, this was a race of, of part human, part T-Rex, tiny little arms. Just so that the measurement for Goliath can be correct. Itty bitty. Yeah. Just so he can be itty bitty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Any, anyway, Prince of Egypt, good film. I liked it. But this is, it's actually a perfect example of the kind of thing you do at a low level. So what we were doing with Fablemans and we were talking through the film and we're breaking it down and talking about theme and, and what the film's about. When you're watching Prince of Egypt with your kids, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. You're, you're saying which things are good, which things are bad, which things are inaccurate, which things are false. Why are they false? Why are they saying it this way? Why do they represent Pharaoh's magicians this way? Um, yeah. And you have to break it apart. So we loved it. We watched it a ton. And we had that conversation regularly with our kids about what's wrong about it. Take authority over it creatively. That is probably the single most important thing yeah. you can do uh, with anything. So that we didn't hesitate to watch it and to love it and to watch yeah. it a lot. Sounds we had, pretty good. But we, I, I made sure <laughs> that the inoculation was there, that my kids understood and, and were even flexing their muscles. So once they knew, the next time they watch it, they were looking for it. They're objecting to it. They're right. finding those things. That they they're complaining like. when Pharaoh gets out of the Red Sea at the end. That kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know? Exactly. No, he's dead. He, he, he dead. He, he dead and gone. He's under that water. <clears throat> Nobody knows where those bones are. Yeah. Um, okay, nice. Uh, we have so many people asking us about The Chosen, but right now it's been, we, neither of us have watched it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So, ton so. of ton of respect for what Dallas has done, uh, building that. You know, it's it's definitely a, a massive outlier, a massive anomaly, and mm -hmm. it's been, you know, it's been really potent in clear ways. I'm not the target audience. I've not watched it. I don't. I haven't gone into it. Yeah, great. Um, we actually have a bunch of new listeners, and so we got to do this question that may be familiar, but um, what, why did you choose to write in the middle grade genre? Right. And what are some of your favorite middle grade books? Okay. Um, and again, do, do share the pod with your friends, families, enemies, everyone who needs to hear the pod. Do I have to? Not you. <laughs> you. You don't have to do anything. Just For me, <laughs> I, I, you should all know that these conversations are conversations that I have in secret with Brian and I expect no one to listen to. <laughs> Nate was um, like, somehow someone heard this again. How, how did they hear this? Who leaked? <laughs> who, who leaked our, like, I, I who leaked our private know. conversation that we had <laughs> into microphones? Um, why, do I, why did I choose middle grade? It's actually kind of funny and I'll, I'll do this at high speed if possible. I wrote uh, a short story in a, for a little literary journal. And the short story is called Conversations with Todd, and I really enjoyed it a lot. It was my, Andy Wilson does Flannery O'Connor, uh, my, my version. So not Flannery, I wasn't just imitating, but the kind, her kind of structure. Mm -hmm. So it was her structural approach. And then later I got a, a cocktail napkin in the mail from Esquire magazine. And they 
said, Hey, can you write a story on, on this? Can you write a story on a cocktail napkin? And is this little paper cocktail napkin? And I thought, yeah, that's really sure. This could be fun. And I was thinking, what, what could I possibly write? And I took it down to my buddy's bookstore at the time, Ball and Cross Books, downtown Moscow, run by Mark Beecham, good friend from way back. And I'm sitting there at a table in this bookstore with this little cocktail napkin. And I look up and I see this huge volume on a shelf that says The Rise and Fall of Judaism, this really big, massive thing. And I thought, you know what? This needs to have a funny, enormous title. Like this is going to have a very big that, grand title on yeah, a napkin. Grandiose. And so I named it that short story, The Rise and Fall of Circumcision. <laughs> a great uh, yeah. story if you yeah. read it, <laughs> yeah. full of discomfort and, and joy. Then, yeah. <laughs> and then I cut the napkin into little tiny strips and then I typed uh, with a manual typewriter, I typed on the napkin and then stitched it, little red thread in the spine, stitched it together into a little napkin novel, this tiny little napkin novel and sent it off to Esquire magazine. It's like, haha, there you go. Well, they, they published it in facsimile. And they, they scanned all the pages and ended up publishing it. And unfortunately, published it in their sex issue. <laughs> so so issue, no one could read it. <laughs> yeah, so, so this magazine comes out and I get copies in the mail and I was like, oh, gosh. Like, no, A, they publish it. This is great. That's hilarious. But, uh, like, yeah. oh, no. Not one you're going to frame yeah. on the wall oh, right no. there. Yeah. Um, and then I actually, it's kind of funny because I, I had a project that was in early, you know, early days as working on a bigger adult novel and had chapters and was kind of tentatively, you know, starting to sniff around with what I needed, what I wanted to do is with a career uh, where I was going to try to write. And I was working on middle grade stuff at the same time. And it all, the way everything synced up is I ended up with opportunities to go publish in the adult market or to go publish in the children's market. So it wasn't, it ended, it ended up being very much a door, like door number one, door number two scenario. And I had pursued middle grade and I love writing uh, other stuff too, but I'd pursued it for a couple of big reasons. And one was a friend of mine who also writes middle grade. She told me that Middle grade is all of the intelligence, none of the hormones. Mm. That's number one. I can believably write adventure stories about 12 and 13 year olds and people can project adult level athleticism and adult level, you know, intellect paired with coming of age, innocence, and not yet obsessed with relationships. And so you can tell the story. You can tell the story and not get into a, a a triangle relationship always like YA tends to. There's always some kind of love triangle. Yeah, know, that's in the, the B. later Harry Potter books. Everyone, yeah, the, it's in the B story. It's, it tends to be in that B story spot in all of YA. Uh, sometimes it's in the A and the A story, but all the intelligence, none of the hormones. But also, what I get to do is I get to write real wholesome comfort food that inspires the imagination and has a concrete ending, or good triumphs over evil. And I can say, I have to do that. It's for the kids. And then most of the readers are still adults. So most of my readers are still, uh, tons of, uh, you know, tons of kids have read these books, obviously. Uh, I'm really still kind of surprised at how many copies I've sold, you know, and how, how many books have sold. But adults are reading these heavily as well. Yeah. Um, so middle, middle grade was an opportunity for me to write stories that were, really focused on story 
classic story architecture without getting hung up on the hormone side. And also to, in an age of despair and apathy, write with concrete triumphs of goodness over evil. Dare that, we say stories are soul food. Yeah. Almost. And so basically I chose to write middle grade because I, I wanted to serve as much wholesome food as I could to as many people as I could. If I went into the adult literary market, uh, I actually had a project called Thrones. This is pre-Game of Thrones, which is kind of funny. So there was, a, there was this pitch and that was kind of floating. And then post Esquire and the napkin novel, editors were interested and they really wanted to even take me into like a, a more like hybrid literary commercial direction. So we, mm -hmm. we want to sell, but we want to like be hoity-toity yeah. um, and do the, the literary thing. The problem there is trying to land for me, trying to land a, a literary story in the way that I see the world and tell the truth would immediately ghettoize me and put me at odds with the market and the genre. Because So you mean the sort of Christian certainty and the knowledge of evil? And yeah, and the, and the ultimate triumph of goodness over evil. And I, all those things I could do in middle grade, I couldn't do if I was writing adult literary. you're writing literary fiction. Yeah, adult literary fiction was not something that I could because do that in. Because that's where they, they, they love the sort of waffle. They love despair and like they love tragedy. Christopher Nolan's wobbling top at inception of like, yeah. is it real? Is it a dream? I don't know. We're just going to leave it there with... Could you say yeah, almost no. that postmodernism affected the literary fiction world? 100%. Much more than the middle 100%. grade. 100%. Because kids don't care about postmodernism. No, they want to eat a good piece of apple pie. They want to eat <clears throat> macaroni and cheese. They want to eat a good meal that inspires them and fuels their imaginations. And here's the beautiful thing. So do adults. Adults also want to read that. They also want to. And because they also want to, if I publish middle grade, adults still read it. Yeah. And I get to serve the kind of soul food I want to serve and the kind of soul food I think actually serves people, the thing that actually right. helps people. And so even with like Ashtown, so the series Ashtown covered stays a little younger, but it ages up the, you know, the volumes get a little older, target slightly older readers. Ashtown ages up more extremely. I, I slotted it in middle grade via the ages of my protagonist in the first book at the beginning. But then the way I get to spend time with adult characters the length of those stories, the kinds of things I'm building later on, you know, when I'm, when I'm in book three, it's like that actually is, um, that's for the adults. That's for the older, it's for the older people. Yeah. And, ki and kids Cyrus love it too. would go from, what is it? 13 to yeah. 15 or 16 yeah, over we, we the keep course of the novel. And we keep, yeah. keep marching up. And so writing middle grade enabled me to put good food on the table that would feed the most people across the most demographics um, in a way that aligned with what's true, good, and beautiful in the world. Writing literary fiction, I knew I'd, get, I'd just get dropped. I'd be at war with the critics. I'd be at war with my editors. Everyone say it's too nice and tidy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say nobody's ever written literary fiction in a way that resolves in, yeah. you know, in a good way. Plenty of people have. And we've mentioned those on but, but overwhelmingly, like overwhelmingly, you can't. Overwhelmingly, you have to pull your punches there. And so Marilyn Robinson is pulling the punches of goodness. Like she's softening the light, she's softening the goodness, and she's amplifying other things as well that are that shouldn't be amplified. Like just the ratios are broken. And so that's kind of a long answer to why I prefer middle grade. Yeah. I really love middle grade. And when I was sitting there at that moment where it's like, man, I can go down this road, you know, where I'm, I could be caustic and 
cautionary and I could be O'Connor. You know, I could I could go there and and pursue a Flannery career, or I could try to write more commercial adult stuff. But even there, they demand a level of sexuality and other things that are you know I'm just not going to be writing. Or I can write middle grade, and I can follow the the roadmap laid down by Lewis, yeah. where I'm trying to impact the greatest number of people with the best meal that I can, and I'm doing it through this doorway yeah. through that middle grade novel and so i chose to imitate lewis will i ever write uh adult fiction like lewis did the answer is absolutely i will uh, you know I, I plan to but i plan to do it after i i'm pretty well established in my flavor and my my brand i could do that now and write what i want to write mm-hmm. and be fine um so that's not that's not an issue anymore how does movies play into that because you've been doing Quite, yeah. a, quite a movie jag, I guess. Yeah, more TV. Um, that plays into it a lot. It actually is tapping into the other side, you know, kind of the other side of, of what I had at the beginning, you know, where I'm pulling in adult stories and, and older stories. And so the things like the, the projects I have going right now are, you know, big giant swords and sandals Bible story. You know, mm-hmm. that's more adult teen you know, middle grade kids could watch it, but they would be the very youngest who could possibly watch it. Uh, and then a more, uh, you know, a, li- a little more teen and up uh, thriller. And then uh, a more what, what Hollywood would say a YA, a YA project. That's not what publishing means when they say YA. You know, think of it as boys on bikes, you know, boys on bikes entourage show. Uh, and then a, uh, you know, a crime procedural, like a rural crime procedural. So I've got these different things all going. We'll see which of them survive. And they all kind of hit different aspects of stuff I love to do. But ultimately, you know, when I see when I when I see the future at all, I see myself writing very much in the vein I started in. But having filled in a lot of other uh other stories along the way. Nice. That's great. Um yeah, I guess you answered that question then too. Lewis is the inspiration. Yeah. Yep, Lewis is Lewis is the, the middle grade. He's the middle and grade. And I king. I tried to imitate him and failed uh even in just my career. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a teacher and a writer. And it turned into I can be a little part-time teacher. That's it. Little, you know, bits here and there. Uh I just have to write. And so I I had to jump into the full-time writing side pretty rapidly. And that was that was it. So I've been a writer who teaches occasionally, instead of a teacher who writes in the breaks of the school schedule. Yeah, but yeah, Lewis definitely. I don't know that I'll ever write it uh, till we have faces, but I definitely want to write a space trilogy. And I mean that only not an actual space trilogy. I just mean those are my favorite. That space trilogy is the absolute best. And so I, at some point, I have to imitate. Right, I've got to imitate that someday when I'm when I'm growing up. Speaking of Lewis, a question from Stephen. What is the deal with Bacchus and all the revelry at the end of Prince Caspian? <laughs> What's the deal with it? <laughs> That's what Stephen says. <laughs> Do you have a vibe? A quick answer, a little literary analysis, all of a sudden on a sleepy uh, podcast afternoon. Yeah, it's that, that one is um, revelatory of the way Lewis viewed the world and his medieval cosmology. So if you really yeah. want to understand it, you should read the Space Trilogy and the Discarded Image. 
So if you read the discarded image nonfiction, great book. And then also read the space trilogy. You start to get a, a, a handle on the way Lewis thought the world worked. Uh, and the way that branch of reality, that branch of creation right. functions. And then that scene and that ending start to make a lot more sense. And then Planet Narnia, always start with the primary sources. Yeah. You can follow it up with Planet Narnia. Yeah, you can read Planet Narnia too. I'm I'm actually... Um, I think we've argued about this on the... Yeah, I'm I'm less... I know my dad's all in on Planet Narnia and so are other people. I'm I'm less so. Yeah. But it's it's not because... Uh, it's not because I disagree. It's I, I disagree with his attribution of intentionality. Yeah, I think it's more intuitive. I think I think Lewis is an intuitive genius. I don't think he had some big scheme like that. I think it was more reflexive. You think his mind was so structured and his view of the world made so much sense? Yep. I think that, it turned into a, oh, this will be fun. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, I, I don't think there was a a real. I, I say this as a writer who's had a lot of people build theories and I've seen, I've had like college papers sent to me of people breaking down my themes and some of them I look at and I think, wow, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> but it, no, that was, that was more intuitive and reflexive that it ended up that way hmm. because I was playing in that key. Okay. You know, it's like you're, you're playing a particular song and you decide to play it in this key and you go and then people notice, Hey, look how it's still this key and still this key. Yep. Still this key. And okay. afterwards, like, wow, I didn't do that. Two of those yeah. I did on purpose. That one I did not do on purpose, but I see how it completely fits with your theory. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, and so there's a- Maybe there's I'll have a, to reread again. I thought it was just way too many. The, yeah. The, <laughs> way too many uh, coincidences yeah, no, I, to be I don't, I don't deny, I don't deny the conclusion. Yeah. In terms of, I don't, well, put it this way. I don't deny his analysis of the books. I think that the level of scheming that yeah. went into it that's uh, the part you think. I mean, Lewis wrote Voyage of the Dawn Treader by hand in one draft, basically, and then did slight revisions. You know, he, so this he's was, not scheming. He doesn't have a wall no, for a medieval, a, no. medieval illusion. It's an outworking of who he is and everything yeah. that was already in there. He was a genius and he was a reflexive, intuitive genius. And yeah. this is how the books came out of that reflexive, intuitive genius. Yeah. So the Bacchus thing so, to me makes sense because Tolkien does the exact same thing. He just built all the mythology yep. behind it. So when he yep. peels it back, you don't notice. And Tolkien's objection to Lewis was that he would willy-nilly throw in mythology whenever right. he felt so like Tolkien it. So Tolkien would hate Bacchus and Silenus yeah. showing up yeah. in the middle of Narnia. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because he makes no attempt to no. fit them in. He, they just no. show up. And so that, yeah, exactly. And so that's the kind of thing Tolkien hated because he wanted it to be like internally consistent and coherent at all times. Right. And Lewis didn't care. Right. And so- He the, said, I needed grapevines to pull down this bridge. So- yep. Yep, Enter exactly. Bacchus. And then yeah. you have, but the myth mixing that you see in the space trilogy as well, where it's just like, hey, and how about Arthur and Merlin and, yeah. and all these other things? And that yeah. drove Tolkien nuts because <laughs> so the, the fact that Lewis is cooking without a recipe and throwing, and throwing things in is why I find the project of Planet Narnia fundamentally suspicious Interesting. while not disagreeing with any of his analysis of the works. Yeah. So- his, his analysis of the works is different than his attribution of the giant blueprint and scheme and all this kind of stuff. I really do think Lewis was that much of a genius. Yeah. Um, well, that's fun. I also think it's fun to watch how comfortable Lewis is taking classical things we think of as pagan yep. and Christianizing them. Baptizing them real yep. quick. <laughs> yep. And putting them to work. Silenus is clearly a drunkard, yep. but he's here. 
Uh, and, at, and he's obeying. And he's at the salvation of yep. Narnia, you know, yep. and the transformation of the little... I will say that was weird, though. That is pretty strange. I do. I think there were other ways <laughs> he, could, he could have done that. <laughs> so to make sense of Lewis's perspective, discarded image in the Space Trilogy and some of his letters, but I, I think that we could fairly criticize that, that character in that moment. <laughs> we could still use grapevines. We didn't need See, it. See, we're discerning fans. <laughs> yeah. We don't just love everything, yep. Lewis. Well, yeah. We, no, I do. We do. I pretty much do just love everything, Lewis. I don't pretend like it's, it's perfect. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's like finding a raisin in a cookie. You know, there's, there's these little moments where there's a raisin and, and yet I still even like the raisin and I liked, like, I liked it. Yeah. And I can objectively see that. It's just a little moment of, mm. I, I could mm. see that that could have been better. <laughs> that, <laughs> that could have been better. And I, and I've done this. I'm guilty of this all the time. Like there's plenty of people who said, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? And I'm like, for me, because I was having fun. That's why mm. I did that. And uh, that's clearly one of those moments that's for Lewis. Like it's, that's for him. Yeah. That that's part of his, his pleasure. Yeah. So Logan has another sort of tangential Lewis question, the pools from magician's nephew, the doors from the hundred cupboards, and then the Marvel multiverse, which we've made fun of before. Yeah. Why? Oh, he, Logan's saying they seem similar. Nope. There you go, Logan. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they different? <clears throat> Well, it's, because yeah, there's the multiverse is is built around weird theories of of layering reality and uh, choices being made differently. Mm -hmm. So there's like a choice gets made slightly differently and sp spins off another reality, and just you're infinite, 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 yeah. infinite. And I think that the multiverse is a retardation station because it's this it's. There's no confinement. There's no restriction. There's no governance of it. It's just, yeah. it's where you get to say, and then magic, and you don't have to explain the coherence of it and just crazy right, stuff because happens. And then you push someone on it and they say, well, if you jump into a different world, it'd be slightly different. You know, that that's sort of, right. to me, that seems like a, so an authorial When you are doing the, the wood trick. between the worlds, you're going to charn very, like charn a very specific place, a very different kind of place and a very different world with its own dying sun and its own mm -hmm. history and everything else. And you're, you're bouncing around. So the and it might be different time-wise. Yeah. You know, yeah. But can the connectivity between different worlds, the fact that there are these different worlds where there are different space times and that you can hop potentially between them, that, okay, sure, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but when you get into the multiverse versus, like what the multiverse is versus, uh, but the wood between the worlds is doing uh, versus what's happening in cupboards. And here's an interesting one. Do you think it's real? Do we have wood between the worlds type places that we can find? I mean, why not say yes? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, if you feel that way, you're the right listener for this podcast. <laughs> and I will say this, if you, if you watch Dr. Strange and you, think there's a similarity between how his knobs are getting spun and the portals are working. I think there's a similarity to, to 100 cupboards. Uh, I do too. Mm. So there you go. Stolen. Uh, borrowed. Borrowed. Yeah. Influenced. Yeah. But I also, it's one of those things. It's, it's not like I'm the only person who've ever thought of stuff like that. But yeah. 
But that kind of thing, the actual, I'm talking about the mechanics of its presentation. Right. You know, it's like, cause it's not like strange, strange had portals, you know, things like that. Um, in the in the comics and that kind of thing i'm talking about the act just kind of the the specific dial spinning to yeah. locate the correct planet yeah that that kind of a thing was was um yeah a, li- a little bit of an echo felt yeah. like i don't know so. i mean i think we've gotten the bible enoch walking with god and the idea of the understanding of mountains and the connections of the heavens i feel like we've got a case that can be made yeah i mean i threw out the idea once that the transfiguration was Oh yeah, that was a, people. People came back with many questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> good questions too. I, 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 it made me think I should have been more. I should have been more doubtful of your theory when it it's happened. It's a great theory. It's not even my theory. It's my brother-in-law's theory, and I, I happen to think it's magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. and I'm also not even saying that it is the case. I'm just saying that that's the kind of thing that could have been the case, and that'd be great. And I like it a lot. Yeah, I mean, the idea of thinking about the New Testament and the Old Testament as one piece together can only be helpful. Yeah. Does that hurt? Yeah. The idea of Moses being there and then coming down the mountain. Yeah. Shining is also fun. Yeah. You like to mess with understandings of time. You, I do. And it's one of your favorite things. Because just... nobody understands it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can't give you a coherent theory of time because nobody can. You're right. But I can kind of destroy and reveal the incoherence of your theory of time. <laughs> Well, speaking of theories of time, I do think this might be illustrative. You've got sort of a multiverse situation in Outlaws of Time where you use a bit of that trick. Where you... Nope. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose we're not doing too many spoilers, but you allow future selves to return. Yeah. But I think, you know, your defense is that there's a limited finite number of them. And they're being used in a particular way, right? My well, two things. I created an arbitrary rule for that story, which I really like. Actually, is that for the two cells? This is outlaws, by the way, outlaws of time. Yeah, basically, if you if you went back in time and you and you found yourself, one of you is going to drop dead. That your soul can only inhabit one at a time. Okay. You know, it's like there's. It's not a materialistic. Yeah, you're not clones. Yeah, it's like this is. So in in presence with yourself, the weaker version is going to die. Is there only is going to be there's only going to be one of you, uh, and that was just a fun device and a story to play with. Mm-hmm. But it also just added a, a layer of restriction. The concept of time there being that you have uh, basically there is a time. There's an inside of time and there's an outside of time. And we do know this. Like we can we can say that much. There's inside and there's outside. Yeah, time's created. Yeah. So there's inside and there's outside. The question is what we don't really know what time is. Uh, and people yeah. argue about that. And so when you say inside of what? Inside of causation, outside of causation, well, that's ridiculous. You know, is it just is it just causation? Um, but the concept of outside, and so the ability of uh, of a villain or of a person, Father Tiempo, you know, Father Time, a, you know, priest of time, to exit time and to enter time. So they're exiting and they're entering. They're moving to outside. And so when we say there is an inside of time, there's an outside of time. That means you could go somewhere that there is no time, and then you could come back. Now, yeah. what are the rules? No idea. Yeah. Uh, could you survive that? No, no idea. Um, but in terms of story, the idea of moving out and then back in somewhere else is not that hard. 
it's not that difficult. There's an inside, there's an outside. So if a character can get into the outer darkness, if they can get where the worm dieth not, if they can move into this outside, yeah, and then re-enter somewhere else. That's that's the question. And and there's a whole long theory that you know of tangled of tangled thread that I won't um, that I won't bore you with. But there's more internal coherence to the whole thing than people think. Now, am I trying to say that this is how time actually works? No, I'm not. But we know time travel is possible. We know time travel is possible inside of time because we're doing it right now. Just one way. Unidirectional time travel. Yeah, unidirectional time travel. Mm -hmm. We also know that it's not all even at a constant rate of speed. So... Wait, inside of that. time <laughs> wait we know that <laughs> we do uh, so we we know that this is like you separate things you bring them back together there's all there's all sorts of things anybody who's ever sat through a really boring class knows that time does not always move at the same rate of speed it well, just perceptionally no it, it actually <laughs> does it actually slows down there are times when we say man that took years off my life and you're like yep <laughs> um Maybe like sure, perceptionally, but I think there's I think there's something to it as well. And there's okay. There's been a fair number of experiments that you read you read up on and you're like, okay, actually it does buy it. Well, it I mean, does make sense that time's not it and it's like the, if it is a river, then why would we maintain that every molecule in that river is moving at the same rate? Mm. You know, it's like it's moving at the same rate through the river. I mean, you've already sold me on the fact that we can change time by praying for something that's already occurred yeah. that we don't know has happened. You've sold me on that one. I can't remember if this was on the podcast or just in life. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could so change. So I guess, I don't know. Maybe I'm just you a could, step you away. Could, for example, if you found out that your great-grandfather uh, was a Lutheran minister and then he went apostate and then he burned alive in some horrible factory fire, you could pray like, man, like, pray that he would have repented before he died that he had the chance to repent now okay that was generations ago why would you why would you pray for that and the the answer is because god is outside of time you're not but you're talking to one who is and it's not it's not complicated for him to hear your prayer and to answer you yes or no 70 years previously now if you if you pray that he would not have died then you've already got your answer. <laughs> like God's already. <laughs> or if you pray, if he's in hell, can he get out right now? That's another one. It's, that's also different. Yeah. But if you're if you're praying about something uh, where you don't have an answer yet, you've not yet been given an answer. You're not asking God to go back and rewrite something. You're looking to contribute and speak into what was written then. Yeah. You know, like that's that's what you're looking to do. And the fact that God is outside of time means that anyone in relationship with him can affect anything at any time. You know, like that's, uh, and that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But the fact that we're traveling through time now, um, it's just right now here, I'm doing it at one second per second. Like I am traveling through time. Time is a thing that we travel through. Um, means that there's, there's complexities to it. It's just a question of, can we accelerate? Can we go back? I think most parodies and, farces and and so on are uh are just that or just dumb lewis really liked the idea of going back in time but having it being absolutely unchangeable mm. in fact the great divorce was inspired and his concept of heaven was entirely inspired by that concept so a concept in a little short science fiction story that he read that nobody's ever been able to find where 
somebody went back in time and the past has happened. And so you could be there, you can inhabit it, you could look at it, but you can't actually change it. Mm. And in, in, uh, in changing it or in trying to change it, you're just going to be destroyed. And so a raindrop will rip through you like a bullet. If you try to, you bend, can't stop that. From if you try to bend a blade falling. of grass, it's going to just pierce your foot because it, it is, it was written and it cannot be unwritten. And it's that idea that caused him to write the great divorce and to write heaven that way. So very different context. He didn't use it in a time story, but he, he really liked that. So yeah. there, anyway, time is, time is tricky. Um, and I think, I think I did a, a decent job of creating a coherent time framework, but I still know that it, everything breaks down. When you start playing with time travel, ultimately everything breaks down. I created, I created rules to try to make it uh, make sense, more sense coherently than otherwise, yeah. um, at least for the writing of it. But well, people we, either love those stories or they don't. And so I actually have a, there's a bunch of fans who like the Outlaws of Time trilogy better than anything else I've written. I think they're drawn to that kind of mind bending and fun. They'd be probably the people who actually do like the, the multiverse. <laughs> Uh, and then there's the Ashtown fans and then there's the covered fans and they kind of, it's funny how much differentiation there is in, in the group, but those people who like the, like, whoa, like Christopher Nolan weirdness. Yeah. The resolution. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And even, and also like the old Westiness or the fantasy Western. Well, I mean, snake arms. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's funny to me though, <laughs> the number of people who will just be like, man, Al is a time, best thing you've ever written. Why don't you write more things like that? Or Lee Pike Ridge. Why did, why did you ever write any fantasy? You should have just only written that kind of magical realism uh, and so on. Very soft magical realism. Yeah. But every, everybody's got their, their flavors and I'm just the guy at Baskin Robbins ready to scoop whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Uh, that's, that's all we got time for today. We have a few left over, but of course uh, you can subscribe. One more rapid fire. We got uh, any more, mm, any more? Well, no? yeah. Mm. Vampires. Vampires. What are your thoughts oh. on vampires? They, <laughs> they suck. <laughs> Blood. <laughs> 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 Really, yeah. really pretty boring. I think. Yeah, I think they're. I think they're boring. We did an episode on ghosts, and I think everything we said for ghosts goes for vampires in a paler version. Vampires are less interesting than ghosts. And yeah, we didn't think ghosts were very interesting. There's things that are vampiric can be interesting. Things that feed off the the you know the lives of others, but vampires themselves are I do find pretty boring. Yeah. Although I will say, I use them in Ashdown, and uh, did we? Well, the Drac the oh the Dracula. the Dracula family, even Radu Bay, and I use I use them specifically because so the Vlads historically are really really interesting, mm -hmm. and the ones who you know Vlad Dracula, uh, and and so on Vlad the Impaler, and basically Vlads this one is, through three. Uh, this is bathing in the blood of yeah they were they were man those guys were bleak they they gave us with their their real horrifying actions in life they gave us a lot of you know lore around gotcha uh, what turned into the worst of of uh horror fiction but the thing i like one of one of the details i love that i i pulled in in ashtown is radu bay uh is actually a brother of vlad dracula who was given as a hostage to the sultan and actually converted and became the commander of a lot of his armies. And he's the one who actually rode into his historic uh, lands and just finally destroyed his own family and his brother. Uh, oh, and, wow. he, and he was even more bloodthirsty, but just differently. 
And so the fact that I've got the Vlads, I've got the Dracules in Ashtown, and I have Roddy Bay in Ashtown. It's like I did not make those guys up. I've I've made up their presentation. I've made up who they are for me in my story. Yeah. But I'm stealing those characters and and being inspired by those really dark historical characters. Uh, then they're strangely treacherous but still dark brother uh radu bay mm. so anyway i i really do i like stealing stuff from history and i understand where the the vampire things came from i don't like how gothic it all got i don't i think i don't care for all the yeah you know the melodramatic gothic women and women dresses yeah <laughs> the best the best treatment of vampires ever was terry pratchett oh Terry Pratchett is the only one I trust with with a vampire. Yeah. But one of my favorite scenes. I was is... afraid you were going to say Dracula dead and loving it. But... <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Pratchett, one of my favorite scenes, I forget at the beginning of which book my daughter could tell me immediately, but there's, you know, this couple and a state, you know, they're, they're riding the carriage and they're coming to the inn in this bleak little village. And there's the big castle this up is, in front of the moon. This and... is Carpe Jugulum, I believe. Probably. Yeah, yeah. probably. But at the very beginning, and then this vampire turns into a bat to fly into their honeymoon chamber and, of course, destroy the, you know, consume the bride. But as he flies in as a bat, the cat eats him. <laughs> like the cat just <laughs> takes the bat out and, and eats the bat and like the end for him. Um, but Pratt, Pratchett's one I, I trust with vampires and not, yeah. not very many other people. Well, it, it reminds me, we just read Prisoner of Azkaban and how annoying it is to have werewolves. And yeah. stuck into Prisoner of Azkaban. It's like, I love, stop it. I love the, re- <laughs> I love the reveal. I love that, but couldn't have been not, <laughs> not a werewolf. And it only would have been worse if he were a vampire. Yeah, that would have. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so grateful that she didn't really do that. Yeah, like imagine if we had started inserting uh, Robert Pattinson yeah. <laughs> into, into, into Harry Potter. <laughs> well, that's that. Yeah, I don't love vampires, but obviously. I say that, but I have some, I have members of the Dracula family in my own stories. So, mm. so there, but they're not some very gothic. They're not very gothic. They don't have their lapels popped. Yeah. They I, don't have sharp teeth. Nate, they don't Nate drink is the not one versions. of the most gothic people that you will ever meet. <laughs> As I, yeah. Despite I mean, being a tortured artist. Sitting here in sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> because, hey, I just finished coaching basketball, but it's track season now. So the life in sweats can continue. Oh, I'm about to start rugby, so. Perfect. So we expect Brian to be here in sweats more often as well. Perfect. Cheers. 105 done. Hi, it's Brian Cole here, wanting to let you know how you can support the Stories Our Soul Food podcast. You can do that by checking out Canon Plus. Head over to mycanonplus.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the SASF podcast. We'll hopefully be seeing you at mycanonplus.com.